Even if you take out the fact that he started as a gamer, the story of Jan Mardenborough's career is unbelievable. If you made it into a movie, no one would believe that you could start at the age he started with the lack of experience, with the lack of backing from parents or sponsors or whatever, and get to where he's got to today. I wanted to throw a handful of words or phrases at you. Full throttle. Full throttle. It's maximum attack, maximum fun, you know, balls to the wall. Fear. Fear. No fear. Yeah, that doesn't really come into motorsport for me. No fear when you're actually in your race car. Fantasy. Fantasy. Dreams. Fiction. Not real. Reality. Reality. This place. Tokyo. But also dream as well. Gaming is a fantasy world, often used to escape reality. A welcome distraction for some. Fantasy and gaming can simply be for enjoyment or a way to vicariously live out one's greatest dreams. And more recently, it's become a burgeoning new career for talented gamers. For most, the dream ends when the gaming console turns off. But for 25-year-old Jan Mardenborough, the dream world became a reality. The gaming kid who grew up in Wales, the son of a soccer player, is now racing in Japan's Super Formula Series, just one level below Formula One. Welcome to SC Featured, I'm Jen Latta. Four months ago, ESPN producer John Fish and reporter Tom Rinaldi caught up with Yan in Tokyo. Tom, what did you think when you heard the basic outline of his story? If it wasn't for John's credibility and having worked with him for a while, Jen, I, I would have absolutely just laughed him off. I thought, dude, wait a second. You're telling me that somebody played a video game and is now near the highest ranks of a professional sport within that same video game. You know, John and I talked and, and I, I suggested an analogy to him. How many people out there play Madden? Okay, so there's millions upon millions. Imagine a contest where we said, okay, the top 20 people competing at Madden for a given period of time are going to be invited to an NFL training camp. And as a grand prize, one of you will have the chance to play a series of downs in an NFL exhibition game. That's essentially what Yan did, except he got in the game and he's still in the game. He's still at an advanced level competing professionally. It's an, it just an incredible story. Where did this love of racing even come from? Well, the amazing thing for him is most children in England are raised playing football or soccer, as we know. And for Yan, the most amazing thing is his father was a professional soccer player in the English Premier League. So at the absolute highest level, you almost expect, especially the way things work in America, son will follow father into sport. But he got matchbox cars when he was two, and he kind of never let go of that. He learned about a local go-kart track, and he went to do the go-kart for about a year, and then the track shut down. So he really had nowhere else to go. And it was kind of over until a neighbor invited him over to play one night, and they had a PlayStation console. And on the PlayStation console, they had the video game Gran Turismo which a lot of people are familiar with. Just not everyone plays it to the extent that he ended up playing. But more than familiar, Jen, I think most people probably don't know this. Gran Turismo is 
the best-selling game in the history of PlayStation. That shocked me when I found that out. But when you consider the global reach and appeal of racing and the verisimilitude of the game, people become hooked, and that's what happened to Yan. It was across the street. This uh, couple my parents were friends with went across there, and instead of socialising with them and grown-ups, I used to go in the living room and the, the friend, the husband, had a PlayStation 1 and the shooting game and Gran Turismo 1. And uh, I played played the shooting game, played Gran Turismo, and uh, I was there, you know, until about two o'clock in the morning when everyone else wanted to leave and I was still playing this game. And they got sick of me coming over so often, they actually gave me the PlayStation and the game. I was just hooked, hooked from then. Yan's love for Gran Turismo would turn into an obsession. He eventually constructed his own homemade racing pod in his room. His parents, Leslie Ann and Stephen Mardenborough, remember just how dedicated Yan became. I used to think that he was spending maybe a bit too much time in his bedroom and he should be out playing football and socialising. Um, but when I realised he was gaming online and he was actually sat in his bedroom talking to people all over the world. Um, it's quite remarkable, really, in his little bedroom upstairs. That this, this, this is something that you could do. It's our first introduction to online gaming. How we gauged it was there were numerous times his mother would shout up to him, come down for dinner, and then she'd shout again. Five minutes. That went into 10, 20, 15, 20. Then she, she got to a stage, three of us were at the table, still waiting on the fourth one upstairs, Jan. She'll turn the router off, she'll turn the internet off. Then he will come downstairs fuming. Why haven't you turned the internet off? As the game's popularity soared worldwide, former Nissan Global Motorsports director Darren Cox came up with the idea to create a contest for GT gamers. Tell me more about the Academy. Well, there's, there's a mysticism behind the game. The inventor, the creator of the game was a racer himself. And he lived in Japan. He still lives in Japan. And his thought was, I want to create a game that is so real, it is real life. And in many ways, he succeeded. And so what happened was there was a man at Nissan named Darren Cox. And Darren was in global PR and marketing, and he was doing an event at a racetrack. And he got some gamers, and the gamers came, and the cars were going around the track, and the gamers were playing next to it. And it was, you know, your typical kind of PR event. One of the uh, instructors um, pointed out that few of these guys can actually pedal the car, which in that parlance means they're quick drivers. And I did a very quick check. I just looked at what they were doing in terms of their times on Gran Turismo and what they were doing on their times on track in a 350Z. And almost the leaderboards were exactly the same. The fast guys online were the fast guys in the real world. And then the light bulb came off. How could I get the best of these guys and put him in a race car and see how quick he could go against professionals? So as he said to me, the idea took about two seconds. The execution took about three years. Sure, because there's natural skepticism to that actually working out. You think so? <laughs> like he said, Cox himself, one of the emails that he received when he launched the idea, Jen, was... Just because a guy is good at Tiger Woods golf does not mean he's going to go and win the Masters. That was their rationale for why this wouldn't work. 
He said the skepticism was overwhelming and you needed to find that gem, that diamond who could make it plausible, viable, a guy who could really bridge the gap between virtual and real. And GT Academy was that competition made into a virtual reality TV show in Britain. From virtual gamer to real-life racing driver, this is GT Academy. And Yan was one of the earliest contestants in the early seasons, and he came through. By 2011, 19-year-old Yan was at nearby Swansea Tech for motorsports engineering. But he found he wasn't real passionate about the program and decided to take a year off. During this time, he discovered GT Academy, and at that point, his focus shifted. I just booted up my PlayStation one morning and there was a new menu, GT Academy tryouts. Tom, just how committed was he to qualifying for GT Academy? I mean, how many trials was he doing during this period? He initially does a lap and he thinks, that was a good lap. Wow, I'm 50th in the UK. I'm off to a great start. He gets back on the game that same night. He's 2,000. So he quickly deduces, I'm just going to drive myself crazy if I grind for six weeks. I'm going to wait until the last two weeks, and then I'm going to go all out. And that was his strategy. He ultimately delivered a lap, which qualifying thousands of times, taking this two-minute or so lap, uh, you can do the math as to how much time he spent. On his custom-built rig with the Art Deco paint job that he built, he salvaged a Alfa Romeo seat from, a, I believe, a local scrapyard and built this thing as a project. So it looks like a car seat with a steering wheel and foot pedals. And then there's his TV, but it's in the corner of his bedroom next to his saxophone across from his bed. Yeah. All that he designed. And in racing, he's trying, Jen, to get one one-hundredth of a second faster. The night the deadline closed, I did my ultimate lap, and I was like, look, up until this point, seven hours a day, eight hours a day, minimum on it. And then I did this lap, which was good enough for ninth in the UK, and it was like, right, okay, if that isn't good enough, I'll accept that and, you know, move on with my life. <laughs> and it, it was. So I went to the next round. It was intense, really intense. And this track was a made-up circuit. They made, the designers made this track up. So if it was a normal circuit, Brands Hatch or wherever, people know this track already. So it was new for everyone. The car was a 370Z and you couldn't change any of the settings. So it was the same for everyone. All the difference was was um, you could have, you could do with a joypad or you with your wheel and pedals. The hardest part of the whole competition was that. So now he is on this show or he's in this program. Did he take to it right away? Did it go as he expected it to go? Well, there were over ninety thousand entries, and he had you had to get a fast time. Basically, you sat in your bedroom or you sat playing your PlayStation until you got a qualifying time, and it was from all of Europe. And they kind of called the best top 10, and he made it to a place called Brands Hatch. And then the top 10 were there, and they played the game against each other, but they also then started to do 
physical activity and, you know, running and exercise and, and where did you stand in that? And then they got him behind the wheel of a real race car to see actually how he could do it. And finally, four finalists advanced to Silverstone, which would be our equivalent maybe of the Indy 500 track. And Yan, on the final day, in the final race, again, Hollywood script, made a daring pass off a move, Jen, that he had practiced in the video game to spook the driver in front of him, who swerved wide, Yan raced past, and won. I did this cool move. You know, gaming teaches you a lot, racing online. Watching racing as well teaches you a lot. So I'm quite far away behind. I thought, okay, I'll just try something. Just before the braking zone, I come out, so I'm in his mirror. And then he panics, and then he just, I don't know, just gets scared and misses the corner completely. And I'm like, oh, that works. (laughs) Some of which I learned on on games. (laughs) And I got past him and pulled out, I think, an eight-second lead and won the race, and that was it. First thing was, like, I want to ring my mum. And she was on the way home from work. It was about 5.20. She's on speakerphone. (laughs) And he's shouting, Mum, Mum, where are you? I said, I'm driving. He said, pull over. I've got something to tell you. I said, I can't. I'm on the Ely Bridge roundabout. He said, just pull over, Mum. And I'm on the podium talking to him. He said, Mum, Mum, I won GT Academy in the camera guys then it's like ah screaming and it was a best moment ever properly cool so we talked earlier about that analogy of tiger woods golf and somebody actually excelling he started to essentially prove darren cox right correct exactly this is exactly what the designer of the game that john referenced earlier believed in jen from the very start this game will be so realistic to life that if you master it, we can just pluck you into a race car. Now, let's take a step back for one second. Four Gs are what you feel in a full-out turn on a figure-eight race car track. Four times the force of gravity, 200-plus miles an hour, other cars surrounding you, and, of course, the risk anytime you get in the car that you could die. Hence the physical tests that they were putting the race car drivers through in addition to the virtual game tests. Absolutely. They wanted to see if they actually had some athletes. Now, Yan was a good athlete. The Obviously, the stereotype of the... Of the <laughs> Tom addressed the stereotype with Yan. We asked him, listen, to go back to Ma, get me some more meatloaf. We asked him, what's the perception of a guy that plays video games for 25 hours a week? And he said... Pringles all over the front of your sweatshirt. You got your sweatpants. You give me a little bit of a knowing laugh there, Laddie. You're scaring me a little bit. Well, I think that that's accurate. I think a lot of people have that image, you know, this narrative of somebody who doesn't do much other than master the virtual world. Exactly. And so he he had, and he said, you know, the, the favorite line his parents would tell him is, if you look at that screen any longer, your eyes are going to go square because that's what the screen looks like. And ultimately, he proved them right in their faith in him that this could lead somewhere. And it did. The grand prize for winning GT Academy was the opportunity to race in the Dubai 24-hour, a popular endurance race where a team of drivers swap racing for 24 straight hours. Nian would be racing for Bob Neville, owner of RJN Motorsports. Bob immediately noticed Nian's skills while participating in GT Academy. Straight away with Jan Marder, we, we could see he had a natural talent. 
which we were delighted about, of course. So, you know, here we had a guy who not only had the skill of the game and the power of uh, absorbing the, the simulator of the tracks, but also a natural talent, which the very best racing drivers do have. Yan's Dubai race team was unique since it was a team comprised of only former GT Academy winners. And in Dubai, Yan and his teammates finished on the podium in third place, an unprecedented accomplishment for a team of all gamers. There have been a number of occasions where the concept of GT Academy has been rubber stamped. And one of those was Yan's first big race at the Dubai 24 Hours when he was on the podium with three other gamers. No professional racing drivers, just four gamers got onto the podium in Yan's first big international motor race. How did it legitimize gamers in this world? I think that's a good question, and I'm sure to a lot of people, Jen, it didn't. It said, okay, good job, one race a career does not make. But it did lead to Bob Neville saying to Yan, you know what, I see a special talent in this driver, and I'm going to give him the opportunity to race in GT, or a Grand Prix circuit, in Great Britain and see how he does. He did very, very well. He won several races. That allowed him to continue to progress to more powerful cars, ultimately to the point where he is right now, which is, as John said, you know, not very far away from Formula One racing, at least for this season, in Japan. So what happened next? He participates. He then, in the next three years, goes through almost a fairy tale like ascension. He races the British GT circuit for his first year. Jen, he wins races. He competes at one of the most famous endurance races in the history of racing, Le Mans, the 24 hour Le Mans. He gets on the podium at Le Mans. He then goes up another class of car. And ultimately, we arrive at the moment that really changed Yan's life as a driver. When we come back, Yan comes face to face with death. Welcome back to SC Featured. The Nürburgring is a track in Germany widely considered the most dangerous and challenging track in the world. 70 drivers have died there in competition. On March 28, 2015, Jan was competing in a race there. His car left the track, went airborne, flew end over end, not side to side, over a safety fence and landed. And going over a um, section of the track called Flutplatz, which is very early on in the, the lap, the car went very light at the front. And, yeah, next thing, you know, you, you're just looking at sky. It feels like a, a long time goes by, and then there's a massive first impact, and then a second one and a third. And the fourth one, you come to a stop on the roof. It killed a spectator. That's what happened in that particular crash. Yan was unhurt. But of course, 
the enormous weight of knowing that you had driven a car and a spectator was killed, anyone out there can imagine what you would carry with you from that experience. In essence, this is a story about the virtual and the real. And I asked him what made it real. And he talked about being in a hospital in Germany, even though he had only minor injuries, and being told what happened, and looking at a lilac-colored wall, and essentially thinking, someone is dead because of what I do. I asked him, I think a question anyone would, simply because you're the guy behind the wheel. What guilt, if any, did you feel? Oh, you're, in, in, you're behind the wheel, and uh, it's, uh, of course, massive guilt, huge guilt. It's uh, something which I would, wouldn't want anybody else to experience because uh, it's just an, an awful situation. It did change him a lot. What can you say to to you to you to your child that um, somebody has lost their life through? I wouldn't say through you, but through what you've been what you're doing. Um, he did go into himself because um, it was very very hard for him. It stays with you. Someone has lost their life. It's never going to go away. So I wanted to know that I could function in my job with that weight. And no one to date has blamed Yan for what happened. But you can't ignore the fact, Jen, that a spectator who came to enjoy a day at the races was killed, and it was Yan's car that was involved. And this is the most glaring distinction between the virtual world, which he was existing in previously, and then the real world, for lack of a better term, that he was now existing in. How did he reconcile these new realities to be actually driving a race car versus in his bedroom like that he had been doing for so many years? He got back in the car and he reached out, as John said, Uh, There were people connected to the team. There was another race car driver who was significantly older than him who had also been in a wreck where a spectator had been killed. He got in touch with him. In in a very interesting point that is not in the feature story, Jen, uh, McNish is the name of this driver, and told him, I think, an incredibly candid thing. I don't know John reacted to it very powerfully. Uh, John spoke to him on the phone, McNish. And what he told him was, I went to the funeral, and that was a mistake. And I thought the candor of that is incredible. McNish meaning it made it much more difficult for me to move forward. Bob Neville said, the team owner, right? So here he spots talent, but he then thinks, Jen, This is somebody's son who has won a prize. Do they really understand what they've won? Does Yan really understand 
what's at stake. And interestingly, Yan, and I think if you, you know, your own work on pieces that involve race car drivers, and you know, there's a fearlessness which is not anything other than core essential step one. Because every driver will tell you to entertain fear is to bring it that much closer to happening. Yan was able to overcome that fear and four days later was back behind the wheel running test laps for Nissan in a single-seater open-wheel car. He was asked to run 15 laps. He ended up running 90. He soon returned to competition in various circuits around the world and continues to impress and exceed expectations. I wonder what racing experts say about his potential and about his skill going forward. He's fast. Yeah, exactly. (laughs) Pardon me, John. He's fast. And what in the parlance of that sort of racing, Jim, what you often hear is you need to find the guy that can make the car get faster. And that's what they found in Yan, a guy who obsessively studies, loves, is passionate about car setup, mechanics, Soup to nuts. I don't don't just drop me in the car and let me go. If he's not on the track, he's thinking about being on the track. If he's not thinking about being on the track, he's thinking about making the car faster once it gets there. Can he believe where he is now? 100%. I don't think there's any doubt in his mind. Yes, he took the unconventional route as John said. But man, I'm in it and I'm in it for the long haul. And as Darren Cox said, the press releases come out, Jen, and now they get it wrong. They say, Jan Mardenborough, gamer. No, Jan Mardenborough, fast race car driver. 2017 is the first season the 25-year-old is competing in the Japanese Super Formula Series, as well as racing for the Nissan Nismo factory race team on the GT500 circuit. And where Yan's next step up would be Formula One, the highest level of open-wheel racing. At least for now, Yan is living in the moment. It's, of course, it's, it's the dream. It's like top of the tree. But I'm not, like, steering my ship in that general direction, hoping that it's going to happen. I'm not closing off doors, because you, you can close off doors. You have to, to, to achieve that. I have no idea what the future holds. Um, I want to be continue on being a, a, a factory driver for Nissan. That's the, the target. I love living in Japan right now. I love the, the racing that I'm doing at the moment. Both races, actually, in Super Formula and uh, GT500. And just to continue this for as long as possible. While Yan's career path may be incredibly unorthodox, he has proven that with talent and determination, a fantasy can become reality. Just ask Darren Cox. You add to the fact that he was found through a game, it literally is fantasy time. So, of course, he got a lucky break. He got onto the GT Academy. But he has made the most of every single opportunity that we gave him. And he deserves all the credit and all the success in the world. If your dream is being a professional racing driver, you can do it. It's possible. If you work hard enough, if you dedicate yourself, it's being done. And we're making a living out of racing a car from playing a game. 
Yan's crossover from the virtual world to the real world is unprecedented. But one person who understands what that success means is Tobias Sherman, the global head of esports at WME IMG, a sports entertainment and event management and marketing company. He takes a closer look at the intersection between sport and esport and just how improbable Yan's success is. Are you able to quantify the impact that Yan has had on esports? Not as yet. I mean, that's a good one. And, and listen, being able to quantify anything in esports is difficult because of the natural explosion of the industry, right? So a day is like a month, a month is like a year and a half. So everything moves so fast and headlines move so ultra quickly and traditional sports teams looking to come in and the NBA looking to do a league of their own in in sort of the uh, mirroring traditional sports with their 2K game. Um, You know, it it seems like every day there is a new uh, sort of evolution or a new change or a new product uh, coming onto the market that seems to move the needle or, or want to move the needle. And, you know, I really feel like quantifying anything within the next few years is difficult because we won't know the results of the impact until far later, simply due to the uh, nascent nature of the industry right now. I think a lot of people look at it and see a number of hurdles in making the jump from esports to more traditional sports. But what is the biggest hurdle? I mean, they're really it's that's like saying, well, somebody plays football. And there's sort of natural hurdles to why they can't go play soccer uh, or whatever. It's all great competitive entertainment. I don't think we need to parse out esports from sports and say, you know, they're two different things. They're just great competitive entertainment. I mean, IMG Academy, for example, has added esports as its ninth sport. I view esports as on sort of a level playing field. And again, when I look at esports, I say, you know, okay, you've got. Counter-Strike, League of Legends, then you've got, you know, football, baseball, basketball, that's sort of the spectrum that, I mean, I think a lot of millennials and Gen X as well would agree that it is competitive entertainment. These guys are athletes, and just because they're not showing that in conventional form doesn't mean that the athleticism, the reflexes, the conditioning, the dietary, the travel and keeping up doesn't exist. The wear and tear All those things exist, injuries, and I think that really the metrics have not been around to really highlight uh, what makes these athletes so special. But day by day, we're we're figuring out new ways of measuring those metrics and showing just why they are so great at what they do. I don't really think that esports exists as a platform or a springboard to jump into traditional sports. I don't believe that is a... I don't even think it would be responsible of us as an industry to intimate that playing a, a competitive game or a competitive esport is going to prepare you into to transition into really any sport. That being said, there will be instances where simulations occur. And look, this can change as VR and AR continue to develop. There will be new opportunity to create platforms for people that maybe live in another country, maybe don't have the right weather conditions, whatever uh, the barrier would be, can be removed through the tool of virtual reality. But as esports stands today, I want to be very clear because really what's super important is authenticity. Nobody is getting in to Counter-Strike or to 
League of Legends to go play another sport. They're getting in because it is a sport. They're selling out stadiums. They're being celebrated as athletes. You know, they have that sphere of influence. Esports is not a platform to get into segue into traditional sports. Esports is a part of traditional sports. Would you say it's changing people's definition of the word sports? That's a great question. I, you know, and, and sort of a lot of people tackle this around golf, our golfers, athletes. A lot of people would always say, well, Craig Stadler doesn't look very much like an athlete, but he, you know, you try golf for a weekend and let me know how it goes. If you've never played before, very difficult game requires a lot of skill. Uh, And then we see Tiger come along. We've never really seen a golfer come out that was even with his physique and the focus on physique and build. So I think that do we have to change the definition of sport? No, we didn't have to change the definition of sports when Tiger came on and was more and golfers started to become more readily accepted as, as athletes. I think it's an evolution of sports. I think for this generation, it's alien or foreign to a lot of people that were raised with traditional sports, but it's very commonplace and natural for millennials and younger to to view this as a sport. How improbable is his story? Well, I mean, I think it, it speaks a little bit to the world we live in today, kind of breaking down what used to be sort of conventional barriers of entry, right? So meaning it doesn't just apply to sports. Uh, there was, you know, a game, Little Big Planet, and, and you were able to go ahead and create in that game whatever you wanted to create. And at one point, the publisher ended up hiring a construction worker that was just really great at game design, and nobody knew, right? He didn't know he had this gift. It sort of came out innately because he was afforded the opportunity. Um, now, does that mean I think we're going to see somebody that plays Madden turn pro in football? No, probably not. That's not probably the best training tool if you want to go pro in that respective sport. So I don't think it'll be, amongst traditional sports, a a key way of getting in. But I do think it will be a, a niche way that his story will not be the last. That does it for this episode of SC Featured. Check out all of our past episodes by subscribing on iTunes or through the Listen tab on the ESPN app. We'd like to thank Jan Mardenborough and his colleagues for sharing his story, as well as Tobias Sherman. This episode of SC Featured was produced by Gavin Cody, edited by Warren Wolcott, Normando Delgado, Ivory Johnson, and Lamar English. John Fish and Tom Rinaldi provided field producing and reporting. Gustavo Coletti is the senior managing producer. Patricia Mays is the coordinating producer. David Cummings is the audio content strategist. Peter Giannassini is the senior director of programming. Victor Vitarelli is the executive producer. And I'm your host, Jen Latta. Until next time, thanks for listening.